0: Good morning. It is a beautiful day on a beautiful island, and we are praising a beautiful God. Amen? You know what the best thing about Maui is? It's not the the beauty of the, the island itself. It's actually this right here. This is the most beautiful thing about Maui is the people of God created in his image singing praises to him forever and ever. You know a day will come when Maui will fade away. It'll melt. The Bible says the mountains will melt like wax. But the glory of the sons of God will abide forever. And this is the most beautiful thing. So this right here is truly a joy. Thank you Nick for leading us in this. It is Memorial Day weekend. And we take time this weekend, and I would encourage you to do so, to remember those who gave their lives in service to our country. Now, it's always interesting because I'm aware of the political climate we are in that there are some who always on a holiday like this struggle, maybe because they don't agree with the wars or the actions of certain administrations. And to you, I would like to say it doesn't require an agreement or approval of war or whatever you believe about those things to honor those who are fellow image bearers of God who gave their lives for this country. And so I would encourage you, honor, honor life. We honor life, all life, Uh, and especially this weekend on Memorial Day, the lives of those who gave their lives in service to the country. So uh, do so in ways that are appropriate and conducive to worship of God and love of man. The title of the sermon today is The Final Countdown. The Final Countdown. I was at 24-hour fitness this week. I was working out on Thursday uh, in the daytime, which isn't usual. Uh, I had a little break there, so I, I went in and I was uh, exercising, and and suddenly my heart dropped as I was towards the end of my workout, um, barely, barely walking, because it was leg day, so if you noticed me kind of going slowly up and down the steps, that's why. Um, so... Towards the end of my workout, I was waiting for a piece of equipment. I also noticed uh, by the TVs, people were congregating and watching the TVs with great intensity and um, seriousness on their face, men and women alike. And uh, they were stopping their workouts watching TV. I had immediate flashbacks to the last time that I saw people gathering, watching a TV with great uh, intensity and focus, dropping what they were doing, which was September 11, 2001. That was the last time I saw that. So my heart dropped, sunk a little bit, so I thought I would go see what everybody is watching. And as I walk underneath and see the TV, (laughs) it was... the the basketball game, the Houston Rockets versus the Golden State Warriors, the final series or whatever it was on Thursday. And I was like, what are you guys doing? okay Uh, But it, it was the end of the game. It was the final minutes. And so people are watching with great intensity to see who will win this back and forth between the Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors. And it was very, very intense. And in like manner, John recognizes in our passage before us today, there is intense, an intensity, an urgency to the task at hand because it is the last hour. It is the end time. And so John is writing with a pastoral urgency. We have seen in this, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we are working our way through the, the letter of First John, through the epistle of First John. We're in chapter 2 now. Uh, We have seen that John is writing to uh, a church or churches to address false teaching and, uh, consequently, false behavior that flows from false teaching as a result of this faction in the church that has arisen and separated. So this group of prominent people has separated from the church. They are teaching false things about Christ and Ha- acting in ways that are inconsistent with a true believer. Understandably, this has left the members at the church who remain shaken in their faith. In other words, this, you can see how this could happen. How do I know that I'm on the right side, right? How do I know that I have it right or that I have it wrong and they don't have it right or vice versa, And so John is writing to address these concerns in a pastoral tone. Thus far, we have seen two tests of authenticity emerge. The first test is the obedience test. Do they follow God? Do they walk in obedience to God's commands as a genuine test of real, authentic faith in Christ? Are these people following God? God in their actions, words, behaviors, patterns of life. The obedience test. The second test was last week, and it was the love test. Do they love the people of God? And it's not just enough to to obey the things of God, but do you actually love God and the people of God? And today, the third test that will emerge is the test of doctrine. Do they believe truth, accurate truth about God? And these are three tests, and what I said last week is these aren't three hard, separate tests. They're interconnected. They are rather three facets of one holistic vision of a genuine Christian who has had their life transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you guys have had some doozies of a sermon the past few weeks. You've been hit. Uh, hard from multiple angles of obedience and love. Now you're going to get doctrine, and you have responded exceedingly well. And I trust the Lord, working through his word, will do the same today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we examine this passage and see that it is the last hour, may you give us proper, measured, biblical understanding as to what that entails. As we discuss the schemes of the devil, the Antichrist, and worldliness, may you give us a balanced approach so that we don't leave here searching for the Antichrist, but that we would leave here prizing the Christ, Jesus. And may we make it our aim to walk in him, to abide in him, and love others to the praise and honor of Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. So, where else in Maui will you go to church today and get hot dogs? Nowhere. Nowhere else. And so, I take that to mean I can go long since your stomachs are settled. Amen? Wow. Wow. Okay. The big idea. Let's get to it. The big idea, stated simply, the antidote to the Antichrist is to abide in Christ with vigilance. The antidote to the Antichrist is to abide in Christ with vigilance. I'm mostly going to focus on the first section of our reading today, dealing with the Antichrist. And so to that regard, I have two points, a call to vigilance and a call to perseverance. A call to vigilance and a call to perseverance. Number one, a call to vigilance. Why should we be vigilant. And this is what John is wanting to do in the hearts of the people in the church to whom he is writing. He wants there to be an elevated vigilance, a spirit of discernment that we're going to see again come up in John. But he's starting to sound the alarm, so to speak. And he does this by saying in verse 18 twice that it is the last hour. It is the last hour hour. This is how he introduces it. Children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. And so we must ask, what is the last hour? That is the first interpretational objective we have. What is the last hour? Remember, John is saying this Few millennia ago, it is the last hour. Back then, it is tempting to read into our socio-economic time and political arena and feel like, "Ooh, it is the last hour," and read that as if it's a now thing, exclusive to 2018 and around. But you have to understand, John is writing then, sometime around 80, 70 to 90, and saying it is the last hour now. And so it's been the last hour for a very long time, for a very long time. And so the first thing we can note is that it's not so much a duration of time, the last hour, as much as a kind of time, a type of time period. It is the last hour. Acts chapter 1 verse 7, Jesus says this, so when they had come together, the disciples after the resurrection, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. If we were to read on in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, for instance, at the sermon on the day of Pentecost, we would see that. Uh, Peter, in his sermon, quotes, actually, the book of Joel that refers to what was happening then with the movement of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as the last days. The last days. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 11, talking about the Old Testament, how it, was, it happened to the people of Israel, but it was written for us, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, on whom the end of the ages has come. So, with a very brief survey, we could say that the nature, or rather the, the time of the last hour, encompasses the entire period of time between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, ever since then, so Jesus came, died on a cross, first coming. We celebrate that at Christmas as a first coming that time period kicked off this age that we call, or that John refers to now, as the last hour. And it will last until the second coming of Christ in glory. So with that brief survey, we see the last hour has been since the time of John even now. What John says in this, the nature of this time period, at least reminds us of the missional urgency of our task at hand, of the missional urgency of our task at hand. Since it is the last hour, the end game, so to speak, there is a full court press happening from the forces of darkness, Satan, worldliness, opposed to the things of God, and there ought to be, on the flip side of that, a full-court press from the people of God to overcome darkness and evil, to advance the gospel in all the world. It ought to be a both-and. We would be woe to us if we were to let the enemy run a full-court press while we take it easy. go back to my uh, 24-hour time period as I was watching the game, if you don't know what a full court press is, normally uh, when one team gets the ball, the other defense team runs to their side of the court and sets up defense. And they let the other team kind of come because nobody's realistically going to make a shot from full court most of the time. Except for me, maybe. And so it's not a full court press, in the final minutes of a game, when the game is on the line as it was, there is a full court press. From the moment they get the ball and pass it in, the defense is there trying to interfere with the plays all the way down. So they have to fight for every inch of the court. And so it is, John is saying, in like manner, it is the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come because it is the last hour. Be on guard. Watch out, Satan is at work in many ways, spiritual forces are at work in many ways to draw the saints away from true devotion to God. To draw away the saints from a genuine, wholehearted commitment to God. And if not that, then at the very least, immobilization and ineffectiveness. At the very least, immobilization And in effectiveness. So there's the call to vigilance because of the nature of the time. It is the last hour. What are we vigilant for? John calls it Antichrist. In verse 18, it's rather interesting. I'm going to call your attention to it. Uh, Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. This word Antichrist is used only four times in all of the New Testament, three of them. John in this letter, the other one later in 2 John. Four times, that's it, only John. This is his term, you could say, Antichrist. So, this raises the question. You see here, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So, very interestingly, the first occurrence of Antichrist in John's letter is without an article. There is no the the Antichrist. You have, he doesn't say, it is a, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. He just says that Antichrist is coming. And then he goes on to use it in the plural. And then whenever he uses it in the singular, after that, uh, whenever he does say the Antichrist, scholars debate, is this a person that we should be looking for? Or is this an idea, a spirit, a false teaching that we should be looking for? Or is it both? It's a question. So uh, most scholars would say that it is both. It is a spirit of Antichrist to be preceded and ultimately fully realized in the person of the Antichrist. That's what most scholars would say. Uh, I would say that interpretation is tenuous at best on the basis of this passage, uh, that you would have to rely on other passages to come to that conclusion. Not necessarily wrong. I can see why there is that that opening there, and I wouldn't take big issue with anybody who would say we should look for a person and a spirit, because this spirit will work definitely through persons. Let me say this about the passage, though. Whatever it means as regards to a person, everybody has agreed There is a spirit of Antichrist that is present now, that you must be on guard for now. It's very interesting to do a brief survey of history of this Antichrist and his identity. If we were to go to the early centuries, the beginning of the church, the church fathers, they were across the spectrum in identifying somebody who could be the Antichrist. Uh, Everybody from various Roman emperors, Nero, for instance, uh, and other Roman emperors have received the privilege of being labeled the Antichrist. Sometimes uh, it was in the early centuries; it was another Jewish man, because they reasoned if this was a false prophet that would deceive people, he must be of Jewish descent. And given that the church was being persecuted by the Jews, it made sense that they thought a a false Jew, a false Messiah, would arise from within the Jewish people. So you had Roman emperors and people of Jewish descent as candidates in the early church for the Antichrist. In the later Middle Ages, Muslims would gain that title of being considered the Antichrist as, as Islam began to rise in the 4th and 5th centuries. Later on, in the early Middle Ages, the most popular candidate for the Antichrist throughout the entire history of the church, who do you think it is? The Pope. The Pope, from the time of the early Middle Ages on till Uh, as many as recently as Jonathan Edwards and Dwight Pentecost, holding that the Pope and the Catholic Church was the Antichrist, Uh, which, of course, you can see why for a period of time the Pope and the Catholic Church persecuted believers of the Word of God. But he was one of the most famous. This included the likes of Luther, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Edwards, Dwight Pentecost, and many, many more would uh, label the Pope as the Antichrist. Very interesting. Food for thought. In the third century, we actually get a description. This is quite comical. We get a description. Somebody recorded an actual physical description of what, from the Bible, they thought the Antichrist would look like in the event you happen to come across him in person. Let me read it for you. I quote These are the signs of him. His head is as a fiery flame. His right eye shot with blood, his left eye blue and black, and he has two pupils. His eyelashes are white, his lower lip is large, his right eye, his right thigh slender, his feet broad, and his great toe is bruised and flat. Close quote. How did they get that? I, I have no clue. I don't see that, but that's an actual inscription that they read, just in case. So, if you see somebody with white eyelashes, please run, okay, please run. Other recent historical candidates for the Antichrist who have been named include the following. Mussolini, Hitler, Ronald Wilson Reagan, I'm going to show you how some of this can get outlandish. Why Ronald Reagan? Because his name contains three words of six letters each, and he almost moved to a street address of 666. <laughs> Elvis. JFK. That's why Dwight Pentecost thought he was part of the Antichrist scheme, because he was a Catholic in the White House who paid allegiance to Rome. You see how all this can get all wild. Mikhail Gorbachev, because he had this crazy... He's the the final and eighth ruler of the Soviet Union. He had this crazy birthmark on his forehead that made people think, dude, that's got to be him. (laughs) It, 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 It is quite comical. Saddam Hussein, and most recently, Barack Obama. Suffice it to say, end-time speculation will always be more appealing than Trinitarian expositions. End-time speculation is always more appealing than Trinitarian expositions, which are truly at the heart of what John is addressing in this Antichrist. See, John isn't trying to tell us to look out for this person so much as to look out for the things he is teaching. In actuality, John is concerned and driven to reassert the biblical understanding concerning the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, being united in one person, what we know as the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, no commingling of the natures, yet one being who died for sinners. He came in the flesh. He was crucified. He was buried. And he rose again bodily from the graves and he is returning in glory. That is what John is concerned. people, ooh, the Antichrist, <laughs> that his people believe If you want, this is your homework, if you want a more official, a very carefully crafted statement on the doctrine of the deity and person of Jesus Christ, if you like this type of thing, I would point you to read and study the Athanasian Creed. It's a very excellent statement from church history on the nature of Christ and the Trinity. But if you want something that your teenage children might listen to, because I doubt many of our children would Jump at, hey, son, I got you a a creed from church history. I want you to read it. Thanks, Dad. I've always wanted this. If you want something for your children that they will listen to and that will simultaneously teach them sound biblical truth on this matter, then I would point you to a song by a rapper named Shy Lin called Hypostatic Union. You can Google it, and I would actually just point you to any of his albums. Buy them all, listen to them, your heart will worship, and you will love it. You will be smarter and godlier for it. Um, But the hypostatic union, Trinitarian exposition, doesn't sound fun, thrilling, exhilarating, but necessary, essential for your salvation, for the purity of the doctrine and the good of the church. And this is what John is concerned with. So if there are so many, we must ask, if there are so many false and wild speculations and differing stances in church history, how do we determine what John is saying about this Antichrist? How do we determine it? Well, to answer that, I would appeal to actually a direct student of John. His name is Polycarp. So John the Apostle, like all the apostles, taught and trained up people. Paul had Timothy and Titus and others that he was training up. John also had people that he was training up that lived on after he died and wrote after him. And sometimes these people can be very valuable to help us gain an understanding and and what John meant. And for that, I'm going to read a quotation from you from church history. This isn't biblically inspired scripture, but this is a student of John named Polycarp, and he wrote a letter to the Philippians as well. He wrote a letter to the Philippians as well. And he kept his observations tied directly to John's letters, 1 and 2 John. And this is what he says, Polycarp says to the Philippians. Quote, for whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. Whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. And whosoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whosoever perverts the word of the Lord to his own lips and says that that there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. Wherefore, forsaking the vanity of many and their false doctrines, let us return to the word that has been handed down to us from the beginning. Watch unto prayer and persevere in fasting, beseeching in our supplications the all-seeing God not to lead us into temptation, close quotes. So how did Polycarp that and others like him? Rather than urging their congregations to look to a person, they urge their congregations to look to themselves. Are you holding fast to the word of Christ? Are you holding fast to the teachings regarding Jesus? Are you cherishing your salvation purchased at the cross of Christ? And if not, if not, then there is a spirit of antichrist that has affected you. So rather than look to identify a person, let us be on guard for this spirit, this spirit of false teaching of Antichrist. And so I would ask, what is the nature of this spirit of Antichrist? It's a good question. Let's, let's ask, what is the nature of this spirit from the text? If we keep our eye to 1 John chapter 2 last week's sermon, we must say at least... That this nature of the spirit of Antichrist, surprise, is opposed to the things of God. It's anything that is opposed to the things of God. At root, the spirit of Antichrist uses the same tactic, albeit in different forms, that the serpent used in the garden. Has God really said? At root, it's the same tactic. Has God really said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Is He really the only way? Has God really spoken in the Bible? Was Jesus really raised from the dead? History Channel asks every Easter. It's the same tactic used from the beginning. I would say there's at least four mistakes we make regarding the spirit of Antichrist. The first mistake comes from pop culture. first mistake is that it's an obviously recognizable force of darkness, as if it's something, you know, when we see this in movies, it's, there's this air of smugness something obviously sinister about this person or people. The music gets real low and dark whenever these people come on the scene, and there's almost like this wink. That it's an obvious, recognizable force of darkness. Number two, the second mistake we make is that it appears obviously sinister in nature and that we would easily recognize it. So not only that it's obviously darkness, but we assume that we would easily recognize it. Oh yeah, that's it. It's the second mistake we make. The third mistake we make is that we wouldn't be tempted by it even if we saw it. It's the third mistake we make. In light of last week's sermon, we can say about that one, that one of the ways the devil works is to cultivate a love for the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is one of the ways that he tempts us through this spirit of Antichrist in such a way that we could say many Christians have a keen mind and a cold heart concerning the things of God. And that is a spirit of Antichrist. You can have a keen mind, you can know good truth, and an ice-cold heart have all the wrong responses to the things of God. Amen. And we make the mistake to think that none of us, myself included, could be tempted by it. This means that the spirit of Antichrist isn't inherently recognizable as evil. It parades as something that is beautiful, desirable, And praiseworthy. It won't look sinister. It can look as a nice helping hand from one of the nicest people you've ever met in a time of need that can later turn itself to cast doubt, darkness, and despair on the purposes and the people and the word of God. There's a number of pastors who are leaving the faith or forsaking biblical truths because of relationships that they have with loved ones, not because of the truth of the word of God. It can look like a relationship. It can look like a riveting book series that captivates your mind or an exciting video game that consumes your attention or an exhilarating new hobby that challenges you in new ways. All things that are not inherently evil, yet embedded in this strategy is a love of the things of the world that will grow like an invasive vine that strangles your soul slowly, imperceptibly. It's a mistake to think we won't be tempted by it. Number four, the mistake is that it's something that comes from outside the church rather than something that comes from within. It's a mistake that we make to think it comes from outside the church. There, out there, those people, the the world system that's just outside rather than from within. It's a danger. Paul says in Acts 20 that false teachers will arise from within the church itself. Why is it important that you give yourself as members to the selecting of elders, faithful, godly men, testing them and examining them? Because this danger right here, the Antichrist has already come. He is already at work in the leadership of the churches in Ephesus, in the leadership of the churches that 1 John is addressing. It's a mistake to think that it can't come from within you have a very important role as members of the gospel of Christ. What are three symptoms? So those are mistakes we make. What are some symptoms? I have three of them of the Antichrist at work from the text. Number one, number one, it leads people to depart, verse 19. It leads people to depart. This is what he says in verse 19. They went out from us but they, the they is the spirit of Antichrist, the people who have come that he has infected, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all all are not of us. So it leads people, the spirit of Antichrist leads people to depart from Koinonia from the fellowship of the saints of God. It is literally a destruction of the fellowship, the very thing that John has said as he's writing in the beginning, that through the Holy Spirit he hopes to cultivate in them. I write these things so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God, and the spirit of Antichrist obliterates it or seeks to. But there's good news even in that, isn't there? Even in that, there's good news. John says that while this is an act of the Spirit that is opposed to God, God's plan is still operative even in the midst of it. They went out that it might become plain to all that they are not all of us. See, amidst satanic schemes and workings, the result of God is a purification of his church and the perseverance of his people. We're going to see in chapter 5 that a hallmark sign of a true and genuine believer is their faith and perseverance of that faith and obedience. Anyone can fake obedience for a while. Anyone can stumble temporarily, but a true believer perseveres and rises to the occasion in the faith. Now, people may try to justify this departure. They might try to justify their departure, but it is not the Spirit of God that leads the people of God to depart from genuine Christian community that we call the church. This is a spirit of Antichrist. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Don't hear me say, Pastor Randy's saying, if anybody ever were to leave the church, that, that, that's a spirit of Antichrist. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. If they go to another Bible-believing church like Wai'ehu Community Church, we will praise God. That is not the spirit of Antichrist. What is the spirit of Antichrist is when people withdraw from the church and say, I don't need the people of God. Any people of God. That is the spirit of Antichrist. And some of you, perhaps, have been tempted by it. This is not the spirit of God. Number two, second symptom. So first one leads people to depart. Number two leads people to deny. This is the test of doctrine we were talking about. Verse 22 and 23, it leads people to deny. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this spirit of Antichrist leads people to deny that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Which is to say, doctrine is very important. Truth matters. Words matter. What we say we believe about God and Jesus is vitally important. Ideas have consequences. How God chooses to reveal himself is to be accepted and trusted and obeyed, not twisted and altered to ease cultural consciences or suited to our own desires. So when someone says that Jesus is not God, but that he's a created being, that's a problem. When someone says that Jesus is not God, but that he was just a man who lived as a good example or was a revolutionary for his time, that is a problem. That is a big problem, John says. They are denying the Son, and this is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, how do people do this today? John's doing it in his day, so I'm going to do it in our day. How do people do this today? We see this today in places what we might call liberal theology. Liberal theology. What is that? It seeks to strike the essence of supernaturalism from the Bible as later editions of religious zealots. So miracles don't happen. We believe in science, logic, reason. These things aren't happening now. They're not observable. They're not repeatable. Therefore, they probably didn't happen. It's all mythology. This is the spirit of Antichrist. This is a, a strain that seeks to strike any essence of supernaturalism from the Bible. Number two, another way we see this done today is through the cults. Through the cults, what cults? Well, the main ones you'll probably see in our day is Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Those will be the main ones. They are not another Christian denomination. Even though they style themselves as such, they deny the Son. Both of them say that Jesus was created. Both of them say he is not equal with God, he is separate from God, and they both take a little bit different routes as far as what they believe about him. And all of it is a denial of biblical belief. Amen. Number three, how else do we see this today? We see this in other religions and other people claiming that we worship the same God while rejecting the role and position of Jesus. Some people will look at Islam, Judaism, and Christianity and say, well, they all really are the same. They all are Abrahamic in nature, monotheistic in description. Really, it's the same. You're all the same. John says, whoever denies the Son denies the Father and is the spirit of Antichrist." fourth way we see this done today is minimizing differences of beliefs concerning the nature of God and elevating various culturally accepted attributes of God. Minimizing differences of belief concerning the nature of God and elevating culturally acceptable attributes of God like love and justice. So we're going we're gonna to turn a blind eye to all the differences of what religions say and, and just know that they all say love people. Be just and righteous. But in doing so, they destroy and erode the very foundations of what each person means when they say love and justice. And then it becomes unhinged, a culturally fluid concept that is to be interpreted and filled in by the people who are accepting it or reading into it. Instead of a concrete, what does love for God look like? What does love for neighbor look like? Amen. Minimizing differences of belief concerning the nature of God, elevating various attributes that are culturally accepted. All this to say, beloved, Jesus is the Christ of God, fully God, fully man, and there is salvation in no other way. This is not a loathsome doctrine to bear, it is a precious truth to prize that God in his great love and mercy sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for sinners. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven except for the name of Jesus. To quote Albert Moeller on this, he says, If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self for crying out loud, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, but if we need a savior, only Jesus will do. Only Jesus will do, close quote. This antichrist seeks to deny the truth concerning Jesus. In many ways, in many forms, he asks the question, has God really sinned? The third way, is he seeks to lead people to deception, to either actively seek to deceive others themselves or they themselves are deceived. But we'll move on. That's your call to vigilance. The spirit of Antichrist, clearly opposed to the things of God, attacks the person of Christ through leading people to depart from the faith, deny the faith, or to deceive others concerning the faith. And you, beloved, must, must be vigilant. In this last hour, and you must be urgent, urgent in your missional zeal. It is the last hour. My neighbor's moving across the street, they're Spanish speakers. My son asked me very piercingly Did you tell him about Jesus' death? I was a moment proud and at the same time convicted. Because the answer is no. Now I can lay the excuse, but they speak Spanish. That's true. They really, they really don't speak English. I could say, I don't speak Spanish. Have I tried to find somebody that does? The last hour let your missional zeal be urgent let us share and seek to share with all boldness and love and hope and power of the gospel that he can change sinners and if I can't find a Spanish speaker then may I pray for the gift of tongues whatever your stance is on that there's an urgency at all costs how can we let people know how can we persevere in the lights how can we abide in Christ only Jesus will do only Jesus will do let's pray father press on our hearts and souls first the joy of knowing god that our sins are forgiven and that we would abide in this reality And so find that as long as we are doing, we will never be swayed by this spirit of false teaching. Father, give us a joy. Give us a joy that we are vessels of mercy. And then out of that joy for love of the glory of God and love for our neighbors, may we tell them, may we speak boldly and often of the good news that you came to save sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.